drug-related killings continue at an alarming rate throughout Mexico, and the violence is now spilling across the border into the United States. Mexico Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News, Alfredo Corchado. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Alfredo Corchado, you are the Mexico Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News. As such, you spend a lot of your time covering drug dealers, the traficantes, the narcos, the kidnappings. This was not the Mexico that you would have been reporting on 20 years ago. It's a whole new Mexico. Well, I actually uh, came to Mexico and my real passion back then was covering immigration covering the U.S.-Mexico relations. Uh, and when I left Mexico in 2000, I left Mexico for Washington because I thought the story had died in Mexico, you know. The immigration story. The immigration story, but also, you know, Mexico now had democracy in the year 2000. And so I figured that maybe the story was going to be Washington and Mexico City. So I moved to Washington. Uh, three years later, September 11th comes around. There is no Mexico story. I mean, there's no real U.S. policy to Mexico. Um, and I returned to Mexico, and my first assignment was to cover the women of Juarez. Mm. You know, who was killing the women of Juarez? And right now we're talking about in terms of the women who have been murdered in the city of Juarez, which is on the Mexico side of the, of right. the border. Right across El Paso, Texas. Right across El Paso. And we're talking about 400-plus women now? Uh, I mean, some estimates have as over 300. Some have, say 400. Uh, most of the, I mean, the vast majority of the cases have never been solved, just like, you know, most crimes in Mexico. And it was then that I realized, wow, you know, this is a different Mexico. So that was a time span of what, like maybe five years? No, it's a, a span time of, of three years, I mean, from 2000 to 2003. Um, and what happened, I think, is the, the pre, I mean, you had a government for 71 years, a one-party rule where the system, the security, if you will, was more preoccupied with protecting the system, protecting the pre, and not really looking after the welfare of the citizens. And so, the pre, just so people know, it's the Revolutionary Institutionalized Party, which was the dominant party for... 71 years. 71 years. I mean, authoritarian, semi-authoritarian rule. And so that's what happened. I mean, the institutions did not work anymore, did not function anymore. Uh, and when I went back to Mexico, I had, I had colleagues who would joke and say, you're coming back for the, La Nota Roja, you know, the, uh, the crime story, et cetera. But no, it, to me, it was really the story of a political transition. It was the Mexico in evolution. And it's been, in many ways, kind of the massacre of Mexico, you know, a bloody, uh, necessary, but obviously very, very painful transition. Well, I've never heard it described like that, the massacre of Mexico. So when people, when you hear this thrown out, that Mexico could be a failed state, that the Mexican government could in, you know, somehow implode, when, when you hear things, are you saying never happened? Or are you thinking, we have to really talk about that seriously? I mean, I don't think it's there. I mean, I, I, I do think it, it can happen. Um, but if there's anything that 
I don't, I don't even want to use the word positive. I mean, if there's anything that's semi-good about this is that at least both governments are now dealing with reality and not uh, finger-pointing that, that we've seen. Well, there was a, a big moment when, um, with uh, Hillary Clinton going down as Secretary of State, where she basically says, we have a responsibility in this. Right, right. In Mexico, how was that taken after years of essentially the Bush administration saying, not barely dealing with it, saying it's your problem, when Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton goes down there and says, we have to look at our drug usage. Um, and I don't remember if she brought up the issue of guns. Yes, yes she did. What, how did that go over in Mexico when you have the United States saying we bear some responsibility here? It was like, you know, Virgencita Santa, you know, finally. Really? <laughs> finally. Because, uh, I mean, what we're seeing in Mexico today is nothing different than what, than what we've seen or experienced in Bolivia, Peru, Colombia. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very old story. But I think finally the Americans are realizing that, wait a minute, we are part of the problem. Uh, and it, it took Mexico. I mean, it took the issue to come to America's you know, doorsteps for, for the U.S. government to finally realize this is about co-responsibility. I mean, it's, it takes two here. Do you, when you hear people talking about this kind of, I don't know if I've heard the word flood, but, you know, the violence creeping over the border coming into the United States. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some people say, you know what, two alarmists may have happened here or there. As someone who works on this issue all the time, is it true? Are we seeing a crossover of this violence from Mexico into the United States? It's a spillover, but I, don't, I think that uh, maybe some of the reports have been a little bit over-exaggerated, you know, a massive spillover of violence. I think the spillovers up to now has been much more uh, of people leaving one side. You know, I think as a journalist one time, some of, one of the things that I'm, I'm concerned about is how we take cities like Ciudad Juarez or Tijuana and we say the, the Juarez cartel or the Tijuana cartel or the Gulf cartel, when in reality, because it's such a transnational uh, situation that should be called the El Paso Juarez cartel or the Dallas Gulf cartel. Really? This is the first time that I'm LA hearing that. Tijuana cartel. Because there is a spillover, not necessarily always about violence, but corruption, uh, you know, people fleeing one side, going to the other side. There is an impact on both sides. And you have uncovered a lot of these stories. I mean, you uncovered a big story that showed that basically American officials were involved with some shady business around not only immigration, but also trafficking. Right, I mean, and that's becoming more and more common, you know, on the U.S. side. I mean, again, it takes two to tango. You, you can't, uh, you know, drugs don't just magically leave Mexico and then, voila, they're in the U.S. I mean, it, you, you're going to have to pay people off. So you, honestly, Alfredo, I have such respect for you because I, as a fellow journalist, I, and I do a lot of stuff, but wanting to go into deep investigative reporting about drug cartels might not be the thing that I'd like to be spending my time on. And yet that's what you have to do. And it's, I mean, when I became a journalist, I, I, well, one of the promises I made to my parents was that I would never cover drug traffic. Are you kidding me? You no. told that to your parents? Well, my parents had a, uh, a small restaurant right on El Salto Paso Street, two, three blocks from the, from the border. And at one point there was a person uh, who had offered my father money to store merchandise, you know, overnight. 
and the money was like something like three thousand dollars a month, you know, which was incredible. When we we had just arrived in El Paso, we didn't really know the dynamics, and when we when we finally found out that he, this guy was talking about drugs, you know, cocaine, marijuana, uh, he said there is a price if the authorities find out, you know, we won't take it out on you. We'll take it out on your sons or your oh daughter. Oh my gosh. And so from that point on, when I told my dad, I said, I want to become a journalist, he says, just never cover drug trafficking. And for the longest time, I, I did follow that advice, not just because of my father, but because I, I really wasn't that interested in the issue. But again, it's, it's, it's become the kind of issue that no one, I mean, no one, whether you're a journalist or a cop or uh, a worker in Mexico, you can't ignore that, the issue anymore because it is threatening, I think, the very stability of the country. Well, in fact, as a journalist, journalists in Mexico have been told by their editors, we are yeah. not going to cover the drug trafficking story. We're not going to cover it. So what does that mean for you, Alfredo? It, I mean, I have a lot of... Uh, friends, you know, some of who are journalists, and, and it it means, I guess, a sense of more responsibility, because um, oftentimes I will get calls from journalists who I do know well, who I trust, who will say, "Look, we can't print this, but here's here's what's going on," and so there is a sense of, you know, you have to find a way to do it. Like you're like the last bastion. Right, you know, last bastion. I hope. Uh, especially for the border, for the, the border region, there's so much censorship along the U.S.-Mexico border that, uh, and it's not just a censorship because of the drug cartels, but also because obviously the, the industry is going through some hard times and they're cutting back on bureaus. Uh, so there is a void of information, you know. Oftentimes, uh, you, you go to a place like Nuevo Laredo or Ciudad Juarez and people kind of gravitate to the mercados, you know and listen to people playing corridos, and maybe they'll get a little tip of what's going on in their neighborhood, of, you know, what's been, who killed who last night and why. Um, That's how, so, so wait a second. So you're telling me that right now there may occur killings and people can't read about it in the newspaper, so they go to the market to maybe get a sense of what the gossip is about what the murder was about? What the gossip is either from Norteño groups or from the local merchant or someone else, you know, just so we are clear, Norteño groups play music, a style called Norteño, right. where it's basically a ballad and they're telling stories. Right. Or, or, or narco corrido that uh, comes from the local, you know, local flavor, the local news. It's like the, uh, the local choir, you know. Uh, and yes, I mean, that, that is what's happening. Uh, there is so much control over news that, uh, and, and some cartels are very sophisticated about that. I mean, they will buy you. Uh, you know, they will buy a spokesperson, they will hire a spokesperson who will actually call newspapers every day. I mean, his or her job is to call the local editors, the local news directors, and say, this story cannot run tomorrow. Or if it runs tomorrow, it must be inside. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that you have, the cartel is at such a level of sophistication now that it's run essentially like a corporation where they've got public spokespeople who used to be journalists who have now been bought off? Absolutely. I mean, that just sounds crazy. You've got, you've got journalists who are acting as, as spokespeople for cartels? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's the old saying, plato plomo. You take the money or you take the lead. And a lot of people, I mean, 
don't have that choice. I mean, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a real easy choice, you know. And, and what other ways do you see kind of, I mean, again, because you're so deep inside this kind of reporting and we don't really hear it so much on this side of the border, when we're talking about cartels, you know, people have this image of kind of, you know, I guess the Pablo Escobar cartel kind of ragtag, you know, a lot, making a lot of money, but not so sophisticated. When you're talking about a drug cartel in Mexico, what exactly are we talking about? And, you know, can you compare it to a corporation? You can compare to a corporation um, because they, they think very, you know, you have, you have the people who are in charge of pushing drugs across the U.S. You have people who are in charge of, of um, killing los sicarios, you know, the killers. Um, and then you have, and you have the public relations side, you know, the people who will, information is very, very critical. And so you need someone who's going to make sure that the message gets out and that the right message gets out. What could possibly be the right message for our cartel on a given day? The right message is we are the most violent cartel and we are the bosses and we control the city, we control the mayor, and our, our rules are the rules, you know? So, so they'll actually put some of their spokespeople to say, make it clear that we control the mayor? Or, or, or not necessarily we control the mayor, but for example, you know, there's a story tomorrow that we want, to, we want a story about how there's so much military abuse. And it has to be on the front page. Because they're savvy enough to know that in Washington, people look at that very closely, you know, military abuse. And, and, and I'm not me, saying that all, all these cases are, are false. I mean, there are some legitimate complaints. Right, but, but, but are you saying that there are editors who will then say, okay, we're going to put this on the front page? Oftentimes, they have no choice. They have no choice. They have no choice. If they don't put this story on the front page, the ramifications, uh, they may kidnap you, they may kidnap your daughter, they may bomb your building, they may kill your reporter, they may kill your editor. How can you possibly have a functioning community of journalists in that kind of a situation? I mean, it's, it's very difficult. It is very, I mean, that's why today I think Mexico is the most dangerous place in the Americas to do journalism, uh, especially on the U.S.-Mexico border. That's where you are, Alfredo. Right. That's what you do. So. And that's why I left for a year. <laughs> and that's why you left and came to Boston for a year. Um, how much do you worry about? I mean, you know, as journalists, we're kind of like, we're doing our job, we're doing our thing. It's not like you're always looking over your shoulder, but are you looking over your shoulder? Well, not here. No, I mean, not in, not in Cambridge, but it is something that I worry about uh, uh, a lot. and. I don't think there's a day that goes by nowadays that I don't think about about that and about how much deeper do I do I want to get you know back into um, because look in the end being six feet underground is it's not going to help anyone so you have to find a way to do the story uh, and be able to live another day to tell the, the next story so. How do you do? I mean, again, when I'm thinking like, okay, I'm a journalist, I've done investigative work, I do it all the time. I wouldn't know where to begin in terms of doing an investigative piece on narco traffics or the cartels. I mean, who do you call? Well, how do you do that kind of reporting? Um, a lot of sourcing. I mean, it's a lot of sourcing. Uh, but a lot of sourcing means you spend a lot of time developing relationships. Developing relationships with, uh, with the right people, and that's really the key, is, is who, who's the right people. I mean, who, who can you trust? How many people, you know, will 
be happy to take you and and have you kill or have you disappear. Um, but you know, I want I want to stress that what we go through as foreign correspondents, American foreign correspondents, is nothing compared to what our Mexican colleagues go through. I mean, they're stuck there. They they have to live that you know day by day. We have the luxury of coming in, parachuting in, and leaving. Um, I'm not saying it's not, it's not a difficult, but I mean, it, it is, I think, a big, big difference in, in terms of security and personal security. So why do you keep doing it, Alfredo? I mean, you're at the level in your career where you could say to your editors, you know what, base me in who knows where, but not Mexico City. I've asked that question to myself, you know, I think for the past 300-something, 60 days. Um, I don't really have a clear answer. I mean, I do have, feel a huge responsibility. And I think as a foreign correspondent, there's no way that you can overlook the story. Can you do things differently? I mean, because I mean, I, I go back a lot now and I think, okay, did I really have to go that extra mile for that story? Will I do it again? And I don't think I will. Um, and I also think that uh, it's time for us as, as, as journalists to also look at the U.S. side, you know, what's happening here. And that's, I think that's really the most overlooked story. I mean, a story that we haven't really covered. Which is American drug consumption, the American gun uh, business, essentially. Right. What other part of this story? Corruption on the, on the, on the U.S. side. Because it's very easy to look at corruption in Mexico, right. but it's hard to actually see corruption happening here. It's very easy to blame and not really look at yourself, you know. And again, you know, that I think is, is the good part of this story, is that finally both societies are looking deeply, you know, into themselves. I mean, Mexicans can't point the finger anymore at the United States and say, the consumption is in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's now in, in Monterey, it's in Mexico City, it's Ciudad Juarez, you know, Guadalajara and on and on and on. It's, it's the fight in Mexico today is no longer just about controlling distribution routes to the U.S., but also about controlling communities, you know, who sells who to your local community there. All right, so given all of this and given the fact that there's a relationship between these two, two countries that is now acknowledged, there has been a bit of an opening on a, on a topic that was, is hugely controversial, which is the legalization of drugs. And in Mexico, there has been increasing dialogue about this. What do you think about that when you hear that? Do you think, yeah, if we legalized it, the cartels would just disappear? Or if we legalize it, that's just going to empower them even more? I mean, they'll have money, there'll be something legal. It... I mean, I, I think it'll help, but I don't think legalization in the end is really the answer. I mean, it, it'll help both sides. Um, I, I think the root cause especially for Mexico, is lack of institutions. I mean, lack of rule of law, impunity, uh, a very weak judicial system. And until Mexico addresses that, and it may take years. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, Calderón's last three years, I mean, with President Calderón in Mexico. We're talking about decades. It's going to take a long time. Uh, because if it's not drugs today, it may be something else tomorrow. Do you feel like in Mexico... Um, there is a will for that? I mean, certainly among the population, there's a will to want to resolve this. But is there a will to say, this really means we've got to change our institutions, our judicial system. We've got to work on this. Is there that kind of a will? 
I've been you know, looking very closely at Calderon's approval ratings, and they still hover in the 65, 60%, which tells me maybe that people do want him to do what he's doing. Um, but that's, I think, the, the real key question, is how long will this will last? That, I think, will really tell us a lot about the Mexican will. How much can they tolerate? Uh, you know, three years into Calderon's term, more than 11,000 people have been killed. Uh, and it's not just narco-trafficking. I mean, there's a lot of uh, innocent civilians who are uh, being caught Which in the Which is actually fire. the question I was going to ask you. I mean, there were some uh, journalists who I spoke to who said, you know, there is a lot of violence, but when you're talking about drug violence, it's very specific. It's not just random people getting caught in the crossfire. It's very specific violence that is directed by the cartels. You kill my enemy, my enemy, you know, then comes back. Is it like that, or is it that a anyone essentially can kick I up? think, I mean, for the most part, it is like that. Uh, but inevitably, you, you're going to have uh, innocent people caught in the, in the crossfire. And not just Mexicans, I mean, Americans too, especially along the U.S.-Mexico border. You've, you've had people from El Paso, young, you know, some, some young kids recently uh, who were killed. Um, I mean, and the other thing that's also worrisome is that it's, I think it's, it's misleading to call this a drug war because we haven't really seen drug cartels targeting specifically the military. There have been some instances, but it's not really an all-out assault between, you know, the government troops and cartels which might suggest that cartels still want to have a pact with the government. You know, they don't really want to go all out. I think when it comes out, you know, when it goes all out, it's going to get a lot bloodier. But we're talking about how many federal troops now have been mobilized with Calderon? In Ciudad Juarez alone, about 10,000 troops there. Uh, nationwide, more, I mean, I've heard more than 40, more than 60,000 troops. Okay, and when you look at these troops, Alfredo, do you say they're going to do the right thing, or do you look at them and say, how many of them are going to get bought off? And, and how long before they get bought off? I mean, if you have, when you, whenever you have the Mexican military take over towns, there's always the, the, uh, the initial reaction, which is like the parade. You know, the troops are going into the city, and people are waving. People feel safe for a few days. And then either it's the cartel's guerrilla war tactics, or the co-option, the corruption that takes place. But sooner or later, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, business goes back to usual. Ciudad Juarez, for example. Um, troops come in in March, the murder rate goes down dramatically from 10 to 1. Here we are, it's back to 8 or 9. You know, it's, I mean, and this is what, three months? Uh, Calderon cannot sustain a policy based just on, you know, sending the military. Again, he has to go, I mean, it's, it, it's really going to take the institutions to take root before you, I, I think, before you start seeing real dramatic change in Mexico, and that's going to take a long time. What has to happen on this side of the border? What, what is the dialogue, the conversation that this country needs to have nationally about this issue that you don't think is happening? Well, I mean, obviously the, the weapons. The weapons is a big, big deal. You know, more than 90% of the weapons confiscated in Mexico come from the U.S., there are hundreds, if not you know, more than a thousand, gun shops just along the U.S.-Mexico border, Texas, Arizona. So you can basically cross the border from Mexico, let's say legally, and you can go and buy a gun right. in one of these gun shops without a problem? Uh, virtually no problem. You know? 
And I mean, that's, that's a huge problem. I, I think the other debate that Americans have to ask themselves is, to, you know, currently, overwhelmingly, most of the U.S. money goes into attacking this problem as a police problem, as a criminal problem, enforcement problem. Uh, you have to really, I think, go back to the, the or, or, or think about the treatment aspect. It's a health issue. Um, and I think those are two critical questions that have to be asked. Uh, before you start seeing some significant change on this side. Okay. Finally, Alfredo, your message to young journalists. Okay, they're looking at you and they're saying, he's got a great job, stable, but my gosh, I don't ever want to do this. Your message to young Latino journalists is what? Uh, I'll say something I've, I've, I've told other people is that uh, personal experience. When I, when I first received my threats, you know, death threats from the cartels, my sense was, like, it can't be. I'm an American journalist. You know, they're not going to touch me. There's, it just brings too much attention. And a U.S. source confirmed that and said, look, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that you just don't look American. You know, so be careful. Thank you, Alfredo. Thank you for all of your work and for sticking to it. We really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Continue the conversation at wgbh.org slash one-on-one. -on -one.